temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. Hi, everyone. It's me, Reshma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up-and-coming changemakers from all around the world, but with a little twist. Every episode is going to highlight ideas from my new book, Brave Not Perfect. Fear less, fail more, and live bolder. Get ready to break free from the cult of perfection. This week, we're doing something a little different. You'll be listening in on an amazing conversation I had with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about bravery and leadership, two of my favorite subjects. If you haven't heard her already, you are about to fall in love. She is so dope, so cool, so smart, and so herself. I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I am so excited to be here with my friend, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, who I think is just incredible. For a lot of us in this room, she doesn't need an introduction. She's a girl from the Bronx, right? She went to high school here, and you were into STEM. She came second in an Intel competition. I'm sorry, I have a photo of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. She may have been like the original girl who codes. The congresswoman went to college in Boston. You're an activist, a waiter. And then you took on one of the most powerful men in New York City, and you unseated him. And you unseated him when a lot of people thought you were crazy for even trying. Far too often, as girls, as women, we're told that we can't. And that voice in our head gets way too loud. And it fills us with doubt, and we start giving up before we even try. In my book, which all of you got, I did a lot of research in this, because I wanted to understand, like, where does this start? Where does this come from? And, you know, I found that, like, from the time that we are literal, we are literally taught to go carefully, don't raise your voice, give that toy back. And our boys are just taught to like climb high and just jump. Now I was a perfectionist and so much of that was from my immigrant parents who had come here as refugees and had sacrificed so much that I thought I had to be that perfect daughter. Tell us about how perfectionism plays in your life, how you grew up and did you feel that too? Yeah, I felt the same exact way. 
I'm first generation. My mom was born and raised in Puerto Rico. My dad was actually born and raised in the South Bronx, but they both grew up in poverty. And, you know, I saw just growing up as a kid every single sacrifice that my parents were making for me. You know, my mom cleaning people's houses so that I could have piano lessons as a kid. And so I felt like I had to be this epic person to justify all the sacrifices that my parents made. And that perfectionism in me created a lot of anxiety. And like every time I got 80%, all I could think of was that it was a 20% failure. And if I didn't get into the number one school, then like that was it. Like I, I had let people down. And so even if I was doing something on the larger scale really good, I could only focus on the things that I had done wrong, on the 5% or 10% or 1% that went wrong. And it was really tough, you know. This year has been really crazy. Obviously, I, I, I won just six months ago, but I was challenging one of the most powerful men in New York City while I was a waitress in a restaurant. And that's the part that gets forgotten all the time. I started running while I was bartending in New York City. And at 28, I was working double shifts and cleaning up people's dirty plates for them and I felt like a total failure. And in a way, it took that rock bottom, a feeling like a total failure, that I was like, well, at, an, at this point, anything that I do is up. And like, why not? It's so true, right? It's like when you're at that point of like, how did I get here? It's almost when you take the biggest risk in your life. So I did what you did, and I know people were telling you, you can't do that. If you do that, your life in New York will be ruined. Yeah. How did you not listen to them, given the fact, right, you were raised to be this perfectionist, and you knew at that moment that I'm probably going to lose, and all these people are going to come after me, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. What was going through your head? I think, for me, one of the most animating aspects was just the why. Like, why you do something. And for me, it is this question, like, why you? Like, what makes you so special? And it was very crippling at the start, because why would you vote for a waitress to be your congresswoman? Why would you? You know, and it made me feel like, I'm not worth this. But then I looked at the alternative, and the alternative was no one. We had never had a primary challenge in 14 years in our district. No woman of color had ever represented us in American history. And in a district that is full it, of people of yes, color. Yes, in a district that's 50% immigrant and 70% people of color. Women of color had never represented us. And also, I just felt like the fact that that whole premise existed, the fact that if you run, your life will be over. If you run, you'll definitely lose. If you run, all these people will come at you is wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, it's morally wrong. And so I felt that as long as what I was doing was right, then I had an obligation to do it. Not, oh, I need to do this so that I can be successful, or I need to do this because this is my next career step. It really felt like I need to do this because it's the right thing to do. And if I don't do it, clearly no one else is going to do it. So who is that person? Like when I think about getting up every day, 
and why I do this work, like these girls are in my heart and in my eyes. Who are you fighting for? I mean, I would say it's the same. It's the same thing, you know, when I walk in my district, and this is my congressional district, and when I walk around and when I see all of you at the subway stop or walking to work or in the coffee shop, I'm always thinking when I'm in community, what does your future look like? And I've felt for a very long time that a lot of our elected officials weren't thinking or asking that same question. And so it's really the same thing. It's when I go around and I see you, when I see small kids, when I see four-year-olds, I'm like, we need to fight for an awesome future. That's what you know, gets me up in the morning. I, I still live in my same building in the Bronx that I've always lived in. And so I walk in and I see my neighbors and I see my neighbors, everything from seniors to newborns. And that's just, that's it. It's right here in front of our eyes. When I look at you and we watch you, it seems like you're always winning. You got a lot of white old men <laughs> following your that way. Like, I'm waiting for Bernie Sanders to show up with some hoops, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you are setting, you, this young woman of color, are literally setting the agenda for so many people. You are lifting us up and making us hopeful about what is possible. But oftentimes, life is never what it seems. So will you share with us a moment where you failed? Oh, yeah. And also, it's like, it is an interesting experience because you work and you work and you work and you always feel like you're failing and you're failing and you're failing. And you think so often like, oh, like if I just get this job or if I just move to an apartment that's a little bit bigger or if I just you know, do X, Y, Z, if I make this change, if I dress a little cooler or something like that, I will be happy. And what I've found is that I used to feel like a failure a lot, and I still feel like a failure a lot. Just yesterday, I felt like I was failing. Every day, I still feel like I'm failing. Does that make you feel freer, or does that make you feel bad? Have you gotten to um, a place where you've kind of checked that immigrant perfectionist on the side, and like your bravery, the fact that you get up there and you fight and you have bold vision, even if it's not working out, makes you feel free and joyful? I think it's like a little bit of both. I still feel like I'm growing out of that myself. So sometimes I still feel like I'm feeling and I have like all this anxiety all the time. And, and especially now, sometimes it feels like everyone's looking at you and no one is, you know? But now everyone actually is looking at me and I'm like, oh my God. Um, but I have started to just roll with it. And I'm like, guess what? I made a mistake, deal with it. Like, I'm trying, and you're not. So, so that's really the part that I've gotten to. It's like, yeah, I messed up. Who cares? Like, yeah, I said, and instead of but on national television, deal with it. Like, deal with it. Because, you know, there's that famous Teddy Roosevelt quote. It's the person in the arena. They said, man, now is woman in the arena. My and, favorite quote. Yeah, My and he quote. says, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the person that's sitting in the audience that matters. It's the man in the arena. It's the woman in the arena. It's the person whose face is just smeared with dirt, who's just eating it, who's falling down, who's trying. That's the only person that matters. And when it comes to shaping the national conversation, frankly, 
I think it's because there's so few people that are trying on a level where they are risking something of themselves. There's just not a lot of bravery. No one's willing to get in the arena unless they know that it's going to work out. Yeah, and I think it's important to reiterate, like, what brave means. And brave means actually risking something. Like, brave does mean you may fail. Brave does mean... It's not just like, oh, I'm going to do this thing that's probably going to succeed. I'm going to do something with a 70% chance of success. No, brave means you're going to go in with a 2% chance of success. Bravery is the moonshot. Bravery is, this is probably not going to work, but it's worth trying. Right. That's what bravery is. Because, exactly. Thank you. Right. Because it's always, it's that, feel, so many times as women and as young women, we talk ourselves out of our best ideas. We talk ourselves out of running for office. We talk ourselves out of starting a business. And then we see somebody else do the very thing we told ourselves we couldn't do. And we're left with so much regret and envy. And so I always tell you, girls, like, go to where that envy is because we won't build sisterhood unless we're living a life without regret. And that does mean that most of the time, it ain't gonna happen. But at least you don't have regrets. Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes, the thing that you want to do or want to try is just, it's like a breadcrumb. You know, you may think that you may want something. I feel like we were in opposite positions because when I first graduated in college, it was my dream actually to do social enterprise work and to work with young people in developing an educational venture. And I tried and I fell on my face. You wanted to start a Girls Who Code? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, you know? And I fell on my face and it didn't work out. And I tried so many things and I just failed and failed and failed. And I remember when I was running in my primary and the thing is like, my primary was really tough. Literally no one endorsed me. They probably wouldn't even stand by you in fear of getting a picture. People would run away from me because they didn't (laughs) want to be in the same picture as me before I was running. And it's like, that's the thing. It's like, you always see after the success and people are like, oh, like, it's so great. This is a huge success. Look at what she did. But before it was really hard. And I'll never forget, there was this one moment where I was applying for an endorsement from a local community group, a local group that had called themselves progressives. They were in my camp, like they were, you know, supposed to be in my camp. And someone forwarded me a leaked email when they were discussing endorsing me. And I had sat, I had interviewed with them. It was, it was like one of the only groups that would potentially even had the chance of endorsing me. And they sent me a leaked email and they said, well, what has she ever done? She's failed at everything she's ever tried. She tried doing this social enterprise and it didn't work. She organized a little bit here, but who even knows what came as a result of that? And she's just a waitress. Like why on earth would we endorse her? when literally there were only two choices and the other choice was not anywhere near this group's political alignment. And literally what, it, what I saw when that email was forwarded to me was my inner voice. It was every critical, horrible thing that I was already saying to myself, that I was already battling when I was getting up out of bed, it was, it was the voice, it was me looking at myself in the mirror, externalized in an email. And that moment was actually really freeing. Because I read it, 
And it was like, you know, it's your worst fear. It's especially when you feel like imposter syndrome. It was your worst fear, feeling like, like someone was going to find you out as like a fraud. And I read it and I was like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore because I'm at least trying and they're not. So the power is in the person who's trying, regardless of the success. If you're trying, you've got all the power. You're driving the agenda. You're doing all this stuff. Like I just introduced Green New Deal two weeks ago, and it's creating all of this conversation. Why? Because no one else has even tried. Because no one else has even tried. So people are like, oh, it's unrealistic. Oh, it's vague. Oh, it doesn't address this little minute thing. And I'm like, you try. <laughs> you do it. Right. Because you're not. Because you're not. So until you do it, I'm the boss. That's How right. How about that? You heard it here. That's right. <laughs> Talk about you being the boss. <laughs> topic I like. Your first day week at Congress, you find yourself protesting Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Right? Yeah. And I heard, like, and so this is the idea, like, Bravery is actually hard. It doesn't feel good. And you felt physically ill. Oh, yeah. Ill. Yeah. How'd you get in there? <sighs> you know, in politics, everything is about, to me, an essential moral question. What is the right thing and what is the wrong thing? And so for me, what happened was like, first of all, that was not planned by me. I wasn't like planning this for weeks, like, ha, 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 I'm going to do this. That was not <laughs> what the scenario was. It was the first day of congressional orientation, and I go in, and it was the night before. There were all of these young people that were sleeping in a church 20 minutes outside of the Capitol. It was like 200 young people, teenagers, people in their early 20s, mid-20s. And they were organizing this action. And I went to go visit these people that were planning this civic action in a church. And they said, this was right after the UN report came out that said we had 12 years left to address climate change or our earth will irrevocably change for the worse. And they said, we have to do something. I'm literally looking at people who are 14, 15 years old. And, you know, I'm 29. And I know that this is going to be the world that we're going to have to deal with, that we're going to have to live in. And with all due respect to my colleagues, but especially in, like, the Republican Party, it's like, you're not going to have to live with this problem. You're just, I'm sorry. I.e., you're like, too old. I mean, no, around. but, but seriously, and it's not, it's not to create like a, an ageism issue because there are people in older generations that have been fighting for the right thing for decades, since the 70s, and you know, they created the EPA and they've been fighting on these issues, but there are a lot of other people that are just like not dealing with it. And I'm looking at these people who are like 14, 15 years old in the eye and they're like, help us. And I could not say no. I don't care whose party it was. I don't care what it was. There were people whose my job is to serve saying, help us. And so I said yes. And I woke up that morning, and I was going to throw up. I was going to throw up because this is real power. This is real deal 
high risk stuff. You know, I have to, every member of Congress gets assigned to a committee and your committee is responsible for the work that you do over the next two years. And if you get a bad committee, you're going to have a bad two years. And this was before my committees were assigned and I'm here going to protest the leader of my party. Well, not protest, but, you know, join in demonstration with the leader of my party. And like, why? In terms of like, why would I do this in terms of my personal self-preservation but the thing that makes me do it is like it's the right thing to do which is why it's not just the skill it's not just how you're doing it. it's not just the fact that I'm legislating or the fact that you are coding but it's what are you coding for and what am I here for and I'm here to serve you so I had to do it and it's not a job it's, it's not, not a, a job, job. It's not a job. It is not a job. It is a gift to be able to serve. One last thing. We talk a lot about Girls Who Code in my book about our practices. How do you practice bravery? Because like you said, it, like, that little voice pops up. And so, you know, I talk about the idea of like practicing imperfection, just starting, taking one step, buying a URL, telling someone you have an idea, you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable positions. What's your bravery practice? So for me... I visualize what I'm doing, and when I feel really scared, I think of skydiving. And so I'm feeling really scared, and you feel all of that adrenaline, and it's like, you know what? I'm just gonna jump out of the airplane. And you just think of it like that. Think of it as skydiving and not just like jumping off a cliff, but there is a parachute. There is a parachute. and. You have to work on your parachute. Your parachute is self-love. Your parachute is learning how to forgive yourself. Your parachute is saying, you know what, that's okay. Your parachute is calling up your best friend and just saying, screw the world, let's have some Chinese food and watch <laughs> Netflix. You know, and I think about my parachute all the time and like, I'm very lucky to have really strong friendships and friends and, and family that love me no matter what. And even now to this day, I'm like, okay, what is the worst thing that could happen in this situation, right? Worst thing that could happen to me is that I'm a one-term congresswoman, like that I don't get reelected or they gerrymander me out of my district or whatever it is. And you know what? I sometimes visualize it and I was like, we joke that we're just going to like move upstate and build a yurt and just live off the land. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's my worst case scenario, you know, and it's not that that's what I'm trying to do or that's what's going to happen. But you think, what's the worst that could happen? And the worst that could happen is that I'm just going to try to lead a normal life. Thank you so much. Everything that you stand for is what we stand for. And I know how much you love these girls. I know how much you love this community. I know how much you are fighting for opportunity to make sure that every single one of them get to march up into the middle class. Yeah. Thank you for being an example of someone who is brave, not perfect, every single day. And we're rooting for you. We are rooting for you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. So on that note, I want some brave, not perfect questions. This is your shot. Oh, I like you. All right, come on, let's do it. <laughs> Coming from two successful women, I see how being brave and not perfect has led to success. But what do you recommend for young girls who have not found success in their lives or feel like failure is the only thing that might come when they choose to be brave? I think the first thing you need to do is 
identify like the tiniest step. Like Reshma said, it could just be buying the URL. It could just be sketching in your notebook. One of the things that I was thinking about doing was doing children's books that reflect our community. And that was one of my first projects. I wanted to work on children's books where young girls of color were the protagonist. And it wasn't just a book about, you know... Sweet Valley High. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, I wanted, a, I wanted it to just be this epic story, and the protagonist was us. And it was in our home and in our environment. And my perfectionism, it, it was really that perfectionism that was my enemy. It's like, oh, well, it's not... It's not perfect, it's the worst, and I would just stop trying. And so one of the concepts that we started to learn about was just having a non-zero day. And a non-zero day was like, did you do one tiny thing? Did you buy a URL? Did you have a little sketch? Did you send that email to just march something forward? And don't compare your present state to what you want the final vision in your head to be. Don't be like, oh, I'm so far away from that thing. I'm failing. Just think of success as, did I do something to move, the, move it forward today? And even if it's that tiny, tiny little movement, it's still really, really important. And you're advancing a lot further than you think you are when you take that tiny little step. That's awesome. You know, one of my favorite quotes right now as I'm going through this book is like, if life were one long grade school, girls would rule the world. Yeah. And it's not, right? So like what happens in the real world is that bravery matters. Like when you raise your hand for something that you don't fully understand or you run for Congress when people are telling you you have no chance of winning, when you have something that you've been dreaming about but like you just, everyone tells you you can't do something. That's like in the real world what's gonna like really not only just find you success but find you joy. And that's the other thing I would tell you. We were talking about this. It's like we're in such this like success-driven culture where we want one thing, and then another thing, and then another thing, and we get that one thing, get that A on that test, win office, start girls who code, write a book, and you're like, oh, this is what it feels like? Yeah. So the real, I think, the thing I want you to chase is joy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Joy. Yeah. And the other thing, too, I think the thing that really freed me is instead of trying to come up with a destination and pursue that destination start to follow your curiosity. My run for Congress started when I went to Standing Rock. And I did not know why I was going to Standing Rock. To be honest, I kind of come from a spiritual background. I just felt called. Like, I just felt called to be there. And an activist had reached out to me and to say, we need more women, actually. They, They needed more women at the camp. And I had never been, I had never driven, I didn't own a car, I didn't know how I was going to get out there, but it was the first time that I just let go of asking, why would I do this? Does this make sense? And sometimes you have to do things that don't make any sense. It didn't make any sense at all for me to go. I was broke, I didn't have a car like, what was I doing? I wasn't a journalist. But we started live streaming our trip out there. And it was the first time I let go and I said, you know what, I'm going to go because I'm curious and I feel called and I just have this little weird hunch. And those hunches, especially for us as women, we intake emotional information and your feelings are information. Your emotions are data. Those hunches 
and that intuition is real and listen to it. Listen to your hunch and your intuition and your data and when something does not feel right, listen to that and when something feels right but there's no other reason that it makes sense, listen to that too. How do you get through the day when it feels like you have no support from anybody else when you feel like you're not brave enough to face something alone? Like what advice would you give the girls in this room yeah. that face that? I've been there. I have felt that way a lot. And especially I, like for me in, in my early 20s, that was probably one of the hardest times emotionally for me because I felt like, you know, I, I moved back to New York, but none of my friends had moved back to New York. My father passed away when I was in college and my mom was moving to Florida and like I literally had nobody. And I think sometimes what you need to do is realize that work is not just what you're doing in a career space, but sometimes you need to do work for yourself and work on loving yourself. And sometimes it's totally okay to put your projects and stuff on pause because you need to cultivate friendships in your life because you need to go, you know, go to the dentist because you need to go out and, you know what, like buy yourself a cute top, like make yourself feel good. And sometimes you just need that day that's focused on you. And sometimes you need a longer period to focus on you. There was a year where I just like, had kind of given up on doing a lot. I was just like, I had failed so much, and I was like, I can't, like, I, I can't do another thing. And I just did a lot of yoga for like months. But it made me feel good, and it was a time when I was really just changing how I thought about the world. And I was changing the basic paradigms, like my iOS <laughs> in here, and the basic just underlying values and beliefs and how I saw the world. And you need to just kind of do that sometimes. And then you can push forward. But we need to understand that work is not just how much value you're creating to the exterior world. Sometimes work is how much value you're creating to yourself. And I think to add to that too, it's, I had to learn a lot of forgiveness for my parents. You know, because they came here with not so much, and they're always trying to, you know, my, my father was trying to get rid of his accent by taking lessons or changing his name from Mukun to Mike so he could get a job. And they were busy and not around because they had to work to help give us a life. And so I didn't have the parents who went to every homeroom class and, like, every award ceremony. And yeah. I found a lot of community with my friends, and so this is why so much, in Girls with Crow, we spend so much time talking about sisterhood. Like, this is your family. This is your family. You are never alone. Hello, Rashma. Hello, Alexandria. My name is Rosemary. And my question for you today is, what is or what are the greatest barriers to female leadership? And what can we do as young women to combat them? So there's a lot. Um, one that I think we have control of like right now is this idea that you can't be what you can't see. And so I felt like for a very long time, one of the biggest barriers to leadership is, I know when I was growing up, I didn't see any women like me in positions of leadership. And so 
when you're only seeing white dudes just like running the world, you think you need to act like a white dude to run the world. Like straight up, like you think you need to talk a certain way, dress a certain way, have your shoulder pads out to here, be like, hi, Jan. Like, <laughs> you think that's how you have to move through the world. And like, I found myself subconsciously doing that in high school and in college. I felt like I needed to write a certain way and talk a certain way and, mm, ah, you know, whatever, and like the things that they like and play golf or what, you know, all that stuff. And the problem is that that mold wasn't made for you. And so even if you try the hardest at being that, you will not be as good as someone who's just that already. And so that's why I've tried really hard to authentically be myself while I'm here in this moment and in this position because I want to show other people that there are other ways of being powerful in the world. Because one of the biggest barriers that we have is like, you know, even when you look at coding or tech, there's this idea that you have to like be this like bro and that you have to like not care about how people feel or not care about community or, you know, just be like, I'm a coder. Like, I, I don't care about emotions. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, and there are other ways of being a programmer in the world. There are other ways of being powerful in the world. And so one way that we can really change leadership is by being ourselves as we are. Whether you're 15 or whether you're 50 or whether you're 100 years old, there are always people looking at you to try to figure out how to navigate their life. So you at 15 are responsible for a lot of younger girls that are looking at you trying to say, how do I be that? Even if you don't think you're successful, there are people looking at you trying to figure out how they can be you. So show them. Show them how you are you in this world. And to add to that, People don't give up power. They don't give up power, so you have to take it. And I think exactly what you're saying is that for so long, it's like we thought to be like them, we would get power. We have to be like ourselves, and we have to take power. A lot of what I see y'all doing in Congress is coming together as a sisterhood and yeah. infiltrating. Yeah. There's three of you, five of you, next, you know, two years, gonna be like 50,000 of you, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. and we're doing the same thing in tech. Like, this is... Girls Who Code has taught more girls to code than the entire city of New York City. Like, we are infiltrating, you know? It's we will get to a place where all Amazon, Facebook, Google can do is just hire you because yep. you are it. Yep, exactly. Right? And we will not wait for their permission. That's right, that's right. You need to do that. And, and the other thing that I just want to advise is don't be afraid of confrontation because people are just going to call you confrontational. They just, like, I'm sorry to break it to you. You could be the most polite, delicate little flower in the world. When you are who you are in the system as it is, you are a living confrontation. And so just own that. Like, don't let that make you feel any kind of negative way. It's a positive thing. You know, confrontation is an essential element of change. It has to be because... If change did not require confrontation, things would just change as they are. But because a system is as it is, in order for another world to exist, as that, that other world will press up against the current world. And that intersection is a confrontation. It doesn't have to be a negative confrontation. It doesn't mean that it's yelling or screaming or anything like that. But it's a transition. 
And so I'm here with this sisterhood, which I'm so thankful for in Congress. And I remember it just happened last week. You know, there was a member that kind of came up to one of my friends and they're like, well, all you guys do is just hang out together. And yeah, seriously. And like we weren't doing, we're literally just sitting there. And that's what I'm saying. Like your existence can sometimes just be a confrontation in the world. And so it was like, well, all you do is just hang out together, like a little, like, you know, whatever, click and whatever. And we're sitting there and we're like, you all hang out as the same, like four white guys and no one calls you a click. You know, and we're trying, you know? And so, so just understand that what you are is extremely powerful. Your existence is extremely, like this room is a revolution. And this little gathering here represents such a massive change in this world. And just say, and what? And to quote Cardi B, no blanks given, right? right. (laughs) Because we're in the Bronx and we got to quote... And people will feel threatened by you, and that's okay. Because it's about your intention. If you're not trying to be negative, and if you're not trying to take anybody down, but you're just trying to be the best you, if someone else feels intimidated by that, that's their problem and not yours. That's right. This was amazing. Can we please give my sister... The Congresswoman, a round of applause, and thank her for being here with us today. Thank you guys, this is so great. Our future is in good hands, (laughs) isn't it? Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Want to make bravery a part of your everyday routine? You can buy my newest book, Brave Not Perfect. Fear less, fail more, and live bolder. It's on shelves now and available at your favorite local or online retailer. I can't wait to hear what you think. Till next time, this has been another episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Rashma Sajani. Brave Not Perfect is produced by Tanya Zaparonic and Emily Scheinbar and edited by Jenny Josephson with music composed by Poddington Bear licensed under a Creative Commons license.